0: Moving on, here we go. Believe. Open up your Bibles. We are headed for John chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. I am going to preach a little differently than I usually do. This morning I'm going to go through all of the text and then I'm going to make the point. You have your bulletin there. Uh, so you can take a few notes as we get there. Uh, before we get there, we're going to look at John chapter 20, uh, verse 30 is our key verse. If you would look at the screen and read it real loud with me, here we go. Jesus' disciples saw him do many other miraculous signs besides the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. (laughs) It's a wonderful verse. Fantastic verse. Uh, After we've gone through the book of John for, I don't know, the next two or three years, I think we'll have that memorized, okay? Even in our text this morning in in John chapter two is where we're headed. As you feverishly turn in your devices, I can tell that you have your device device on because it comes up on my iPad. Would you please share your Wi-Fi password? And I have to delete it and get it off my screen. yeah, even into, in chapter 2, John the Apostle has written. He's not writing to entertain or to intrigue us with this story. He is writing to encourage our belief in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, and that you and I might have life. And as we go on, we're going to see have life more abundantly. Amen? Quiet crowd this morning. We do have coffee in the lobby in case you feel like you need caffeine. All right, here we go. I titled this this morning, The God of Glory and Grace. The God of Glory and Grace. Think with me all the way back while we're looking at that title, that's that's important. Think with me all the way back to the, the uh, prologue of John in, in verse 14. I'm gonna read this, we're not gonna put it up because I want you to focus on the words, all right? In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, so the word, and in the prologue, he hasn't defined who the word is yet. All we know is that word is logos, and logos is pointing to a God, a little g God. We're not sure, sure who it is yet, but then in verse 14, he says, So the word, this God who created everything, I like the prologue, became human, and that's gonna be who? Jesus, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And then John says this, and that's why I titled what I titled the the message this morning. He says, and we, talking about John, the other disciples, all the other eyewitnesses, and we have seen his glory. We've seen his glory, The Word became flesh, lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. We are going to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the story of our text today. So here we are in John chapter 2, verse 1. It may be a story that you're familiar with. But hopefully it is just new to your heart and your soul this morning. John chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. He says the next day. Now John has been using that as a way of marking uh, scenes in John chapter 1, the last part of John chapter 1, into John chapter 2. Uh, there's some discrepancy if we're on day three, day four, day five. Doesn't really matter. We're just marking time. Uh, we're, not, we're not so much marking time as we are marking a, a transition in the story. We went from one idea to the next idea, one building block to the next building block building block. Are you with me? Okay, good. All right. 20 of us are all on the same page. The rest of us are going back to sleep. All right. They, were, they didn't get the joke. The next day, there was a wedding celebration. Everyone say Celebration. <laughs> So last week, you guys were quiet, and I'll let you be quiet. I'm going to let you off the hook this week. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. I like maps, so tada! here's a map. You see the Sea of Galilee? The region of Galilee, and I circled Cana in yellow so that you can see there's this little place where Jesus and his disciples are gonna go over to this little village of Cana and they're gonna have, they're gonna be a part of this wedding celebration. Make sense? Okay, that way you know it's a real place on the map. They went to the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Her name is. Mary, so Jesus' mother Mary was there, and Jesus and his disciples, which he called in the previous chapter, they were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. They were having a good time. So Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. That's the story. They go to the to this little village. Wedding celebration uh, should be about seven days, around seven days. They're celebrating people's weddings. It's not like now where, you know, we're like, is this this wedding going to happen for another 10 minutes?
1: Oh, my gosh.
0: Uh, I don't like long weddings. But that's different than a wedding celebration. I don't like a long wedding service. I like a long wedding celebration. That's what we should do. Anyway, it has nothing to do with my text. So we have this. They're in Cana. Jesus' mother's there. Jesus and his disciples there. They're all having a good time. Jesus' mom walks up to him. Jesus there. They they have no more wine. Oh, we ran out of wine. That's pretty embarrassing, by the way. In this culture, wine was a significant part of their diet. It's unlike our culture. Uh, They didn't have a water treatment plant in every town like we do, and we have good people who work there. Half of Desert Heights works at the water plant. (sighs) I think the other half works at the hospital, and the other half works in the oil field, and then there's the other half that... I'm not very good at math. Yeah. You know, they say that four out of three people are not good at math. so they didn't. They they, they they. So they drank a lot of wine, and in, in your, a lot of European countries, they have bad water. So they still drink a lot of wine. Wine was not not only a common drink, but it was especially uh, an important at a wedding because wine was a symbol of peace and prosperity. There's a symbol. There's a correlation here, okay? This is important because if the symbol of peace and prosperity at a wedding, if the symbol runs out, (laughs) some of you went, oh, that's what happened at our wedding. (laughs) We ran out of wine. Now we know why there's not peace and prosperity. No, it has nothing to do. No, it's totally different. The wine symbolized peace and prosperity. They ran out of wine. At this wedding, the host, or at weddings, they would have, the host, the bridegroom specifically, would have been responsible for providing wine for all the guests, which may last up to seven days. That's a lot of wine. Uh, In my last 30 years of paying attention to weddings, uh, when my oldest sister got married, she had a wedding, and at the end of the service, they walk out the door, they throw the rice, they get in the car, they drive away, the rest of us leave. And weddings have changed since then, because now what do we do? Well, I'm not going to go through it, because it takes too long. We have the service and then we have pictures, and then we have reception, and we feed everybody because it's become more commonplace that we feed everybody, not, not at the, the night before. What do you call it, the grooms? We don't do that anymore. Anyway, we changed it. So now, so now we, don't, we, we feed everybody after, serve, after the wedding service, but it's still only one meal. We're not talking about seven days. Holy moly, that's mind-blowing, isn't it? We're going to have a wedding. Come over to my house for seven days. There's going to be like 100 people there. I'm going to feed you all for a week. So, So to run out of wine for your guests at your wedding celebration is an extreme social and financial embarrassment. These people may have traveled to come. They're staying with you. They're relying on you to be hospitable. And now you can't take care of them the way they expected you to take care of them. So it appears that you have messed up your math and you've invited more guests than you can financially take care of. Does that make sense? You invited all these people, and even in that culture, there was a culture of gift-giving at a wedding. So you invite people, and they're expected to bring a wonderful present. So you invite all these people, hoping that they bring you great gifts, and then you can't even supply them with wine for a week? How rude. You don't do that. What's your problem that you can't do math? You invite a certain number of people over and you take care of them. If you can't take care of that many people, then don't invite them over for a week. (laughs) Do you understand the debacle here? Jesus' mother is not just being a pushy mom here, I don't think. I think that she is genuinely concerned for this couple's wedding, even more so their reputation. She probably knew them very well. We don't want them to have this bad experience at their wedding. We want them to uh, have a good experience at their wedding and that they have peace and that they have prosperity. In John chapter 2, verse 4, going on here, Jesus responds. He says, Dear woman, I don't think he said it like that. You guys heard it different than I meant. Dear woman, he doesn't say mom. And so some commentaries say, well, he's not, he's not meaning to be demeaning at all here. He's just recognizing that he's not addressing his mom in this situation. He's woman, that's not, it's hard to get away from in our, our language, isn't it? Woman? And then he says, that's not our problem. You and I, we're not hosting this. We have no responsibility here, not our problem. I heard somebody say this week very eloquently, not my circus, not my monkeys. That's exactly what's going on here. (laughs) Jesus is like, I came to enjoy a wedding. I came to have a good time for seven days. The fact that they ran out of wine, not my problem, mom, let it go. And then he says, my time has not yet come. I'm not, I'm not, my time to perform miracles, my time to be the son of God is not here yet. Bad timing, not my problem. Let it go. Verse five, but contrast, right? So Jesus, the son of God, creator of all, puts his foot down. Woman, not my problem, not my time. But mom told the servants, But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. (laughs) Jesus first, Jesus deflects his mom because she comes and says, Jesus, do something about this. This is not our responsibility, Mary. The host is who messed up here. It's not our problem to fix. It seems that Jesus' mother, here. She, in this story, she's recognizing that Jesus was more than just a simple man. He has, he has something supernatural going on about him. Mary seems to expect Jesus to do something miraculous about this very human problem. Is it that big of a deal in the grand scheme of eternity? Not that big of a deal. We ran out of wine. Run to Walmart. Get over it. Right? It's next door over in Nazareth. Four or five days. They'll be right back. Mary seems to expect Jesus to do something miraculous, something divine, something supernatural to intervene in the course of this very human problem unfazed by Jesus's resistance, she instructs, Mary instructs the servants to follow Jesus's instructions. So first, Jesus blows his mom off, doesn't listen to her. Nope, not going to get involved. And then Mary just totally ignores Jesus. This is not a lesson on uh, social dynamics and how to get along with your your mom, by the way. Don't do this. She's like, whatever Jesus, you guys do whatever Jesus tells you to do, he's gonna take care of this. Verse six. Standing nearby were six stone water jars. Now you gotta kind of picture this in your mind. Festivities are going on. Somewhere towards the front of where this party is at are these six stone jars. Now, well, let's read on so that you kind of get the picture. They're used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons of water, okay? So you can, you can picture a 55-gallon barrel, and there were about half of that. So uh, maybe they were tall but, and cylindrical, but still you have these jars that are made out of stone, and they're relatively large, and they're, they're, they're filled with water, okay? You got that all picture, six of them, and they're all arranged there at the front uh, because they were used for Jewish uh, ceremonial washing. It was a big deal. Verse 7, are you, are you all picturing that? Some of you are not. Okay, well, we'll go with those that are picturing it. Some of you are like, I refuse to picture anything in my mind, Brent. If you don't put it on the screen, I'm not going to picture it. <laughs> I could have, but no. Verse 7, Jesus told the servants. So there's these jars here. Jesus says, fine, Mary, fine woman. <laughs> and he says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Mm. When the jars had been filled, now what the New Living Translation leaves out that other translations put in that's really good is when they had been filled to the brim, right to the top. Picture that. It's good. He said, now dip some out And take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Now you've got to understand the cultural relevance of these pots. They're very important. These pots were made available for people to wash their hands in. They didn't have facilities like we do now. And a good Jew would never go into a wedding celebration where obviously there's food and wine and people where you're going to shake hands and hug and not wash their hands before and after. Right? I mean, we get that, but the Jews did not view washing their hands the way you and I do, because for them, this was a religious ritual. It was a ceremonial cleansing. We wash our hands to get all of the sin off. It was about spiritual things. It wasn't about germs because they they didn't understand germs like we understand germs, right? So this is about before we celebrate with other people, we go through this legalistic ritual of washing our hands. The water in those stone, stone jars offered some sort of spiritual cleansing. So these jars are not just a place to wash your hands. This is a spiritually significant stone jar. That's why they were made out of stone, because there was, there was an association to uh, the, the stone being pure. They would have been, probably would have been cut from a single stone. So they take one big piece of quartz and they cut it and they hollow it out and make this big stone jar. Because if it was made out of wood, it would contain impurities. If it was made out of clay, it would be seen as impure. So they have these stone jars. A lot of effort went into making this a cleansing, purification ceremony. Okay? Do you get the end? This is important what these jars are made out of. It is. Spiritual significance. It's possible that these jars held uh, 20 to 30 gallons of water. They were cut out of one stone. Um, oh, this is important. It's not as though the servants went over and grabbed these stone jars. Because remember, we've got, we've got some jars. They're, they're significant size, 20, 30 gallons. It's not that, like they went over and grabbed the jars and picked them up and toted them over to the water faucet and filled them up. No, they were probably extremely heavy and they were full of water already. So they would have had to have emptied these jars of the dirty water... Then they would have hauled the water. They would have taken them back or they would have they would have left it in place. They dumped the water out. They leave them there. Then they got to go get some smaller containers and they bring the water from somewhere else and they fill the large stone jars full to the brim of water all under the eyes of Jesus, the disciples and a few servants who were supposed to be serving the wine. So the party's being neglected. Then they dipped, after they filled these six stone jars to the top, then they went back, uh, they went and... and uh, Then they dip some of the water back out of the stone jars, and they probably put it in some sort of a serving pitcher. We don't have that in the text, but they're going to take some wine to the master of ceremonies. So they got to get it. They're not going to carry the stone jar over to the master of ceremonies. Here, hold your cup, and we're going to be... That's no, they had something, there was some other method in between there. So they took it and they poured it into the cup of the master of ceremonies, who would have been uh, the master of ceremonies in this situation is exactly what it sounds like. He's the one in charge, he's the one who is organizing this event over seven days. You know, you don't want your bride and groom having to take care of the kitchen during their wedding. So they're out having fun. You have one person who's designated to make sure that everything goes smoothly. So they take this wine to the master of ceremonies and they pour it into, or they take the water and they pour it into his cup. Jesus, remember that Jesus, the disciples and the servants, they're the only ones that are privy to what is going on in the kitchen. Right? Verse 9. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water, that was now wine, not knowing where it came from. <laughs> There's a picture there. We got it out of the boys' bathroom sink. <laughs> it's in essence what happened, All right. <laughs> Sorry, I think about things like that. When the master of ceremonies tasted that the wine, the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. See, the master of ceremonies doesn't, doesn't know what's going on. So he calls the bridegroom over, and he says, verse 10, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the, the less expensive wine. He doesn't say the bad stuff, but that's what's going on. But you, to the bridegroom, the master of ceremonies, saying, but you, you have kept the best until now. Now, I don't know why, but I have just always envisioned the master of ceremonies as making this big announcement to everybody uh, about what's going on that that uh he 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 stands up and announces hey our bridegroom is giving us the best wine now and that's not really what is going on in the text the text seems to indicate a more private conversation the master of ceremony seems to discreetly admire the bridegroom can you just absorb that for a second the master of ceremonies who's taking care of everything while the bridegroom and and the, the bride have time to spend together and celebrate and have a good time and not be distracted by the kitchen the master of ceremonies comes over to the groom and he says hey man everybody else serves the good wine up front but you are serving the good wine towards the end that's amazing now what is that bridegroom thinking now you know I mean, unless he's just a total moron, he had to have known that they started with less wine than they were going to need and that the wine that they had wasn't all that great of wine. We've invited too many people. We have to go cheap on the wine so that we can serve as much as we can, as long as we can. And now, miraculously, there is noticeably expensive wine. And there's plenty of it. Hmm. This bridegroom is going, oh my goodness, I don't know what happened, but something just saved our bacon. But Jewish guy wouldn't say that. Uh, That doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, Saved our wedding. Somebody just miraculously saved our wedding. Verse 11. Verse 11, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. What are the disciples thinking here? What's going on in their minds? Last week they were Jewish fishermen, they went to the synagogue every once in a while. Hopefully, they went regularly. I don't know. They probably were raised memorizing the Torah. They were just Jewish fishermen, regular guys. They were somewhat careful to keep the law of Moses. They may have seen an an amazing natural phenomenon out on the Sea of Galilee from time to time, uh, but they had never seen anything like this had never seen anything supernatural so obviously supernatural as what they saw because they they went with Jesus and they heard this conversation between his mother Mary and Jesus and the servants they saw they're standing watching bunch of good guys they're watching as the servants work they're just standing around they saw the water They saw them filling up out of smaller pitchers. They saw them filling up these these 20, 30-gallon vessels of water. They saw the water being poured in. They were there when the servant ladled the water out of the hand-washing station and into a wine cup, right? Yeah. They saw with their own eyes the master of ceremonies take his cup. You know they're glued Dude, that came from the bathroom. And they're watching. What? He's he's, going to drink. He's going to drink it. And then he's like, finishes his conversation. Thank you for bringing my wine. And he's going to take a drink. And then he's, oh, man, it's a beautiful couple. We're so glad they're here. And then he takes it. And he takes a drink. They saw the expression on his face. They saw the expression change from just, I'm just having another glass of wine, to all of a sudden, there's this, what? This is different. This is good. This is the good stuff. This is amazing. I love this. And then, why are, why are we serving this now? This does not make any sense. I mean, this is wonderful wine, but this is at the wrong time. This is, there's, there's confusion. And you know, the disciples, they're all watching, and they're just waiting to see what is going to happen because they still don't know exactly what he tasted. These men... These disciples, the servants, they witnessed the glory of Jesus. No, they didn't see a light around Jesus' head because we often equate uh, the the glory of God with a light. But that's not what they saw. But the text tells us that this was a demonstration of Jesus' glory. What they did see is the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. That is worded very carefully because it's incredibly important that seeing the glory of God is not seeing a beautiful light. Seeing the glory of God is like seeing the character of God. They saw, in this demonstration of Jesus turning water into wine, they saw the manifest presentation. They saw this happen in front of them, presented in front of them. They saw God's, the character, the the specific characteristics of God's infinite and majestic nature. They saw it in Jesus, and they believed are you with me? They saw Jesus perform a miracle right before their eyes and before their eyes and they believed in him. They thought to themselves something along the lines of Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus has just demonstrated in front of us this supernatural godlike powers and I'm going to believe that he Jesus is God. Now we put that into the context of the prologue where we have this unnamed God is going to come to earth, become flesh, reveal himself to us. And then it says right here that Jesus, this this man, just a regular man, he comes and he demonstrates right in front of us the manifest. I don't know if I can find my word again, manifest presentation of God's infinite and mad majestic nature. We have seen God today. Pretty cool. Pretty exciting. We saw him. Verse 12, after the wedding, he, that's going to be who? Jesus went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brother, his brothers, and his disciples. No big deal. Jesus saved the wedding, saved the reputation of the bride and the groom by turning the water into the best wine ever. Then we all go back to, we're going to go to Capernaum, back over by the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to hang out. Mary's going to cook for all of us. We're going to play cornhole with the disciples and Jesus. We're going to play cornhole with the Son of God. It's no big deal. We all stand around watching Jesus because now we've seen something supernatural happen. So now when we're hanging out with Jesus, we expect that he is going to do something unexpected that is supernatural. Not one of those disciples went to the wedding at Cana thinking, Jesus is going to perform a miracle. This is going to be awesome. No, they never had not even crossed their mind. But now they're watching him, and they're thinking, Jesus is going to do something natural, supernatural, because after all, he is God. They believed. Point number one, and I have about 45 minutes from here, and then baptism. I'm kidding. Point number one, Jesus is the God of glory. He's the God of glory. Verse 11 says, this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. We think of glory in the sense of a radiant light, but clearly in this story, there is no radiant light. There's no angel singing. The sky doesn't open up to the throne room of God, the father, but we do see that those who were present there saw with their own eyes, the manifest presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature revealed in the man called Jesus. We see Jesus perform a God thing. Something that is glorious, that reflects the character and nature of God. We see Jesus demonstrate his supernatural power over this natural world, over his creation. I think it's just... It's absolutely fantastic. Jesus caused water to turn into wine, into very good wine, by the way. Just back to John chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, So the Word became human and made His home among us. He's talking about God, the creator of all, all those connections. Became human, made His home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen His, what? Glory. We have seen his glory, not just that he did something cool. We have seen something in him. We've seen him do things that makes us know that he is divine. He is the God. He's not just a man. He is glorious like God the Father is glorious. Are you with me so far? There's no doubt that Jesus is the God of glory. Number two. Oh, man, that went fast. Number 2. Jesus is the God of Grace. Now listen carefully. The success of the wedding is an issue of public honor. If you throw a big wedding and you have really bad food and no wine, people's going to social fail. The success of the wedding is an issue of public honor. People go and they're like, yes, they were great hosts, beautiful couple. It was all wonderful. They were very hospitable. They took really good care of us. The groom and the bride fell painfully short. Did you hear me? The bride and the groom, they fell painfully short. They did not provide adequately for their guests. This couple, they failed miserably they got probably what led to this failure is they had gotten greedy and they invited more people to come to bring them gifts than they had prepared to provide food and wine for does that make sense like yeah let's invite a whole bunch of people they'll bring us gifts it'll be great they got greedy they failed all these people show up now they can't take care of them it was disgraceful this couple had messed up really, really, really bad. But then Jesus shows up in this story. Are you, do you see where, I'm, where the illustration is going? This man and woman failed. Kind of like maybe we fail. But then Jesus shows up in this story. The son of God comes to the wedding. That's pretty cool. Not in a spectacular beam of light, though. He slips in, and he's hanging out with his disciples and the servants. He's just a regular guy. It's just just some, some stone jars, some water, and a demonstration of grace. It's a demonstration of grace that tradition could never perform. The tradition would have been, this couple did not take care of us, so we're not going to be their friends anymore. Jesus and his disciples, not our problem, not our circus, not our monkeys. If they don't take care of us, we'll just be mad at them and not come to the next wedding in Cana. But that's not what happened. Jesus, the son of God, humbly does not upstage or embarrass the bride and groom. Do you see that? He could have. He could have said, hey, everybody pay attention. There's a problem. The bride and groom, they're kind of knuckleheads. They're young people. We expect that of them. But they have run out of wine. So in order to make sure that everybody's taken care of, I want everybody to look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm going to turn the dishwater into wine. And you guys are all going to be impressed. And poof, it would have been done. And it would have disgraced the bride and the groom. The son of God comes to your wedding that you have messed up. And he very covertly fixes your problems. Jesus miraculously provided wine in a way that the wedding couple were honored more than they deserved Jesus made their wedding the event of the year, the wedding that served awesome wine when others would have served the bad wine. Arguably, this is the wedding event of all time. I don't know of another wedding that is as talked about as this wedding. It's a pretty incredible thing that God did at this wedding. He did it quietly, he did it gracefully, but he still did it in all of the glory of God, the creator. That's just a beautiful story. There's no right way around it. God shows up quietly, performs a miracle on your behalf. Bride and groom probably didn't know until they bought a New Living Translation and was reading it and they were like, what, that was our wedding, yeah. Jesus, the Son of God, shows up to a poorly planned, poorly organized, and underfunded wedding where he secretly and miraculously changed the water into wine that was better than the previous wine. Only a few people knew about this miracle. The master of the ceremonies, the groom, the bride, they had no idea how miserably they had failed. In a snapshot of how God's grace works, it's not a big show. Jesus' miracle is not a big show. It was for people who don't even understand their desperate need. They don't deserve God's intervention. Yet we see the divine God of heaven and Earth troubling himself with a simple little problem in human nature, in the human events. It's not even a human nature problem. We ran out of wine. God intervenes. It's miraculous. Jewish tradition viewed these stone jars as containing water that was effective for spiritual cleansing. Jesus pours it out on the ground. There's great symbolism there. Jesus came along and he put a supernatural miracle into those stone jars. That's incredible. Are you guys getting the relationship here? Our salvation by our own works. Oh, I'm going to make myself clean. I'm going to get it really good. Right? I'm making myself clean. Give me more water. Jesus comes along, dumps it on the ground, says, let's let's just do a miracle here. How about that? You are so screwed up, you don't even know how screwed up you are, and I am fixing to transform your world. Not just good. Great. Hurry up, Brent. Andrew, John, Simon, Peter, also known as rock. Philip, Nathaniel, and a handful of servants are all that saw this miracle that saved the dignity of this wedding. They saw the God of glory. They saw the God of grace, and they believed. Just make sense? Let's bow our heads together, and then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about water baptism. Father, we thank you that you are a miracle-working God We recognize that there are things in our lives that are wrong, that we just don't even understand how far we fail whenever it comes to your kingdom and your perfection and your righteousness. We fall short. So Father, this morning we come to you trusting that you are a miracle working God and that you'll take all of our efforts and be kind to us about them. But that you will intervene in our spiritual lives and that you will cause us to be reborn, not of water, but of the Holy Spirit. That we are transformed by your Holy Spirit, reborn into your kingdom, into your family. Not just good, but we are reborn great. Father, we believe with all that we are based upon the testimony of your word, upon the words of the Apostle John who was there and he saw it. We believe with all that we are that Jesus is the Son of God, and He's the transformer of our hearts. He washes our sin away when we can't. He redeems us and brings us into your glorious kingdom. Our confidence is in you. Our confidence is in you alone. God, let your glory shine through our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.